Welcome to the Ninja Tune podcast with myself, DK, and this time we welcome Dorian Concept to the show. We'll be having a little chat about his album Joined Ends, plus his life growing up in Vienna, his work with the Red Bull Music Academy, and of course we'll hear about some of the music that has influenced him over the years. After that, we'll be checking out some of the new releases coming out on the Ninja Tune family of labels. There's new music from Marabou State, Seven Davis Jr., the Mercury Prize winners Young Fathers, Brainfeeder recording artist Kamasi Washington, and Lee Bannum with a track from his second album on Ninja Tune. So stay tuned for that. Tune HQ with Oliver Johnson, better known as Dorian Concepts. Welcome along to the Ninja Tune podcast. Hello, good to be here. You've been playing out live a lot over the last few months, uh, obviously promoting your album Joined Ends, which came out on Ninja Tune last year. Uh, we'll talk a bit more about that later. Um, and your your live performance, it's fair to say that that got you noticed on YouTube and, uh, and MySpace. Um, can you remember that time you were doing it? Were you, did you expect the kind of reaction you got? was one of the first things um, surprisingly also that I guess you know helped me promote the live show or got people interested in wanting to book me um, yeah but it's, it's still kind of it's still but surprising to me because I it was uploaded a bit as a uh, kind of inside joke just because uh, no, the normal tutorial or demo videos of the microcorg just weren't really that exciting and um, I think I just wanted to kind of present it from a different angle and show that you could use it as a an improvisational instrument somehow too. And um, yeah, but it's looking back, it's definitely very happy that it all worked out so well. So I'd, I'd like to go back a bit further. Um, I want to hear about what a young Oliver Johnson was listening to, you know, growing up in your household. What was the music you were exposed to by, you know, sort of friends, family? Um, my parents aren't the most well I didn't grow up in a music family so I had a kind of pretty I'd say a standard selection um, of music from ranging from stuff like the Beatles to Cat Stevens or something so uh, you could kind of say something that's normal in a kind of middle class family in the 80s and 90s in Vienna um, but I think personally the first music that I exposed myself to as a or that I kind of got through 
into through with my basketball colleague funnily um yeah it was more kind of street based rap music stuff like kind of epmd and basically the more west coast side of things like um the whole death row click like tupac and um actually also yeah more synth heavy production because uh, the west coast always had a more kind of musical approach to producing um and also a bit more synth heavy which is i guess something that also influenced me so yeah th and through that I, i think that also you know classical music always played a big part there's a radio station called einsen austria that I always that my mother always has running in the kitchen or always, still has running in the kitchen so And also I remember, um, funnily, because I didn't really grow up, uh, my father never really played jazz, but he was always telling me about the fact how um, that something like John Coltrane was basically the kind of craziest thing you could listen to back when, when he was a kid. You could probably compare it to something. Um, but actually, the, I think the, f the first time I found out about uh, John Coltrane was actually through... Um, Tom Chance, the saxophone player from the Cinematic Orchestra, because I uh, sent him an email being so curious about his playing technique. So I was actually familiar with, uh, funnily, sample, like people that sample jazz music prior to actually understanding what jazz is and the history of it. So I had the kind of, um, like a lot of people do, I think, you know, going from um, present moment or like kind of going from second generation to first generation stuff. So. Um, I actually emailed Tom Chant, the saxophonist from the Cinematic Orchestra, to ask him what influenced him as a musician, because he was also playing the soprano saxophone on all of the early motion records and everything. Um, and he, yeah, he just sent me uh, um, the name of this John Coltrane record uh, called Live at Birdland, which was recorded in 1963 and released on Impulse Records. Yeah, so. Funnily, I was actually exposed to it through the Cinematic Orchestra, who actually also, in the second track that I'm going to show you, sampled uh, a part of Your Lady. Your Lady by uh, John Coltrane. Um, and then after that, what were your sort of first experiments with music, other than, you know, having any musical lessons or whatever? When did you feel like you were really starting your path of creating music? I got lucky on one hand because my piano teacher in 
uh, Vienna, the first piano teacher I had when I was six or seven years old, actually had quite an alternative approach to teaching. So she noticed that I wasn't really into reading notes and kind of having um, the kind of typical classical approach, playing the Flohwalzer and um, she actually presented me with these more kind of graphic notation pieces, um, which I just I kind of vivid, vividly remember this one called Ping Pong, where it was basically just me and her playing the kind of highs, high and low octave, similar to how you could imagine a game of ping pong or table tennis going. Um, and also her kind of, you know, opening the piano and letting me kind of play with the strings with a, a, a pen and stuff. So she, it was actually the from the more playful approach to working with an instrument she I was really happy that she kind of got me onto that uh, so early and from an electronic side it was basically from through a friend of mine showing me the software called buzz which is a freeware program like a tracker freeware program um, that I just uh, yes yeah, did some really awful producing with are we ever gonna hear them uh, I think I don't even have them anymore I'd love to I'd love to hear them but yeah, it was, it's on the one on the uh, PC, um, the computer that my parents had, and it took it like 10 minutes to boots and stuff. So it's going to be hard to get the files off there. Um, so th actually, you know, your first productions that came out. When was what year were you properly sort of producing music? Um, the first ever track that was released was actually in 2004. So it was just a compilation um, that was done by my friend Jamal, who actually runs uh, a Fine Records now, that I've also released on uh, regularly over the last couple of years. Um, back then, he was part of a collective called Vitamin Source. Um, and they released this compilation called Barracuda Astronauts, which was just a four-track compilation of um, different producers from Vienna. Um, and after that, it was mainly digital and net releases, so which was also like an interesting time for me because in the kind of early to mid 2000s, that was you know prior to SoundCloud. I think that was the, the way to really kind of get your music out and in some way also get you noticed together with all the remix competitions that also you know labels like Ninja Tuner um, everyone was doing I was kind of participating in that and also one two of those uh, one for digital midgets and one for fat cat actually so uh, so it was a kind of funny time you know you had to get noticed differently in the kind of mid 2000s so. yeah I wanted to ask you a bit more about the fine record label um, there seems to be a great little community there of, uh, of people, and obviously with Sid Rim on it and Clonius and, and, and others. Um, what was that, what's the scene like in Vienna? Or what was it like certainly when you started releasing? What were your influences from within your city? And 
yeah, it's, um, it's definitely like a collective effort, I think. Um, kind of looking back, I think 2004, when we were just doing nights there, um, um, kind of DJing regularly, and you know, I think the mid 2000s were, it was a weird time for electronic music because I think even us as teenagers, we felt like we were mainly listening to like late 90s or early 2000s stuff and there was this kind of hole where no one really knew what's going to happen with all this um and so yeah we you know we i think that the one night that kind of also or the one venue that kind of was still not kind of going doing anything too commercial and that was intriguing for us musically was this place called the Flugwanne. Uh, um, it's right by the kind of by a big railway station in Vienna and they were inviting people like Luke Weibert or um, Kid Koala actually played there too. They were doing these weird break core nights and noise nights and it was just this yeah, like a very interesting venue where they had loads of people pass and come through so it was just kind of at some point clear to us that we wanted to do something similar to what was going on there just for with local artists and yeah it's nice to look back and see how it grew and did the did that record label kind of grow out of that honestly i think it's just one one association i have now uh, but basically the, the label grew out of uh, jamal um i think just seeing that there's so much potential because me uh, both me and paul and clemens sidram and the colonius we started all producing pretty much around the same time then we formed this band JSBL which I'm also going to play a track of later um, in also around mid kind of in the mid 2000s and we all kind of knew and had friends that were also producing and at some point Jamal I think you know was just smart enough to kind of see the potential in, in all of it and um, and also the attention that it kind of deserved or that he thought it would deserve and, yeah, and it's nice to look back and then see that for example, December uh, last year, we threw an event in Vienna that was sold out with uh, 500 people. And just to see stuff like that happen where we just kind of started off DJing in kind of small cafes and everything. Well, let's have a listen to that. Uh, it's JSBL. JSBL, exactly. Um, what's the name of the track? Uh, this track is called Rekindle of the Libido. It's an awkward track name because we had... Uh, uh, we were... In, the, in this really gnarly um, kind of practice room and we just had a newspaper hanging on the wall and just randomly chose words to kind of get track titles. So yeah, this is Rekindle of the Libido by JSPL. Great, let's have a listen to that now. Thank you. 
That was JSBL. Um, what year was that from? Oh, that's a good question. I think that must have been 2008 or 9. I'm not sure yet, but I'm assuming that it's 2008. So you're still coming out with stuff under your own name at this point as well? Yeah, exactly. The first ever release on a fine records uh, was actually a solo thing, called a solo EP called Maximize Minimalization. And so, yeah, the JSBL record that we did was the second thing, just released on CD and digital. But and um, then you had an album out on Kindred Spirits. Was that just after the uh, EP? Yeah, it was around that time. It was, um, I think, around 2008 or nine. Um, due to the fact that people like uh, Benji, B and Giles uh, were playing my stuff. Um, well, actually, the first person that ever released something kind of like the first international release I had was actually through Domu's label back then, Treble O. It was him and his colleague uh, Shifty, I think. That's just the name I remember now, uh, who did the... Uh, they did this really nice compilation called Here Comes Treble and it featured artists like Daedalus and Lucid and it was also I think when the first kind of people were getting interested in the more instrumental side the instrumental kind of postilla uh, wonky aesthetic or whatever you want to call it um, and I somehow kind of I guess I kind of slided in through that part of yeah the electronic music world and they were actually the first one to put out a four-track EP, also just digitally, and then people started playing it over here in, in the UK, and yeah, that's when I kind of got noticed more and more internationally also, and just had a big run of releases because there was also, yeah, something like kind of, I think at first I was just getting so excited about putting out records that I didn't really think about it being too much. And that, that first album, sitting down to, you know, write that and release that, Obviously, doing an album compared to you know the releases here and there is a different process. Was it was it harder for you, or were you very productive at the time? It was yeah, I was just very productive at the time. I was finishing my school in Salzburg, and um, basically was just doing music the whole day because I was studying sound design and music production. So it kind of tied in well with what I was studying. And um, I just remember actually also with Kindred Spirits, we also just wanted to release an EP, but I kind of got pressured a little bit into just no not pressured I just kind of got everyone told me it's better if you do an album and then I was like yeah let's do an album so it just kind of happened so looking back for me um, it feels more like a kind of compilation of tracks that I was doing at the time um, but it's also on the other hand it was very good that it happened because it always gives you just a kind of you know diff people perceive you differently if you have an album out and then they kind of you get booked to different places and stuff so it was good at that time to just I guess peek out a little bit more and and that uh, the trilingual dance experience EP um, again around the same time that literally or both tracks tropical hands as well both tracks seem to be literally play, played by everyone what was the feeling like with that you know you'd, you'd had a few releases you were getting played obviously but it seemed it seemed like everyone was playing that yeah that was definitely I think that especially also from a UK side of things was uh, one of the breakthrough moments somehow because uh, I just remember sending it to like four people I think um, I was yeah I, s I sent it to Mark Pritchard I sent it to Hudson Mohawk 
um, and yeah, kind of remember to other people, and suddenly kind of just spread around uh, the, the London, uh, London being played by so many different. Uh, Simon Bonobo was playing Tropical Hands all the time, and Giles was playing Tropical Hands, and then um, Code Nine was playing Trilingual, and it was so funny to kind of see because I was never that intrigued by club music prior to making that track, and it actually uh, Trilingual dance experience actually happened a bit. It was a bit of a um, piss take of garage and house music. Like it actually did, I didn't make it. I didn't want it to be wanted to be taken that seriously. But it's it's funny how I think yeah there's just that there's something about that energy when you don't take yourself seriously that it's, it's just one of those beautiful things that when you let go of your um, concepts and everything that sometimes that's when you start making sense to people so um, but yeah it's incredible how it, how it all kind of got together there. also got a strong relationship with uh, the Red Bull Music Academy. Um, obviously, you went along. What year was the, the your first experience with them? Um, also in 2008, actually, I was in Barcelona as a participant. Um, and yeah, ever since, I've kind of just, yeah, it kind of grew naturally that um, I've been over there in the, the studio team the last three years. So the addition last year in Tokyo, and the addition prior to that in New York. And then there was a one year break because uh, they had problems with the building in New York. There's always, yeah, need another fire exit here or something. So New York's a tricky place to get stuff done in. Um, What's your posi position with them? Because you obviously went just as a participant, but are you kind of like a mentor for people there? What's your role? Yeah, the studio team role, it's, uh, it's kind of pretty, um, it's, just as a, on one hand, you know, you do take care of technical side of things there. There's, there are these studios that all the participants uh, work in over the two weeks that are there. And on one hand, you just kind of have to make them feel comfortable with the equipment. If something doesn't work, you uh, help them out with uh, things. And it's, so there's a kind of, you know, sheer technical side of um, somehow managing the studios. But then there's, I think, also like a bit of more of a maybe mentor side of it. Like you kind of just try to tell them what you went through musically and how, so both from a production side of things and also just um, from the experience side of, on one hand, knowing what it's like to be a participant at the academy, but on the other hand, just being in the music industry somehow, I guess, um, just yeah, try to be open to them and tell them about your experiences and everything. And so it's quite a, like a holistic thing of just trying to cover as much different parts of uh, yeah what it what it's interesting uh, just try to kind of be there and be yourself basically. <laughs> 
Who, who was on that the first year? Who else was, uh, other artists were participating? And did you make some, you know, long-term friendships with them? Oh yeah, definitely. It's, um, it was quite a crazy uh, term that I was in, because it had, uh, Lucid was there, um, Luke, yeah, from work discs, then Teeps, uh, Fatima, who just won the album of the year, Charles's Awards also, from Eglo Records. Um, funnily also, uh, Taku, who back then, yeah, I think he blew up like a year or two ago, um, but he was also there already, um, and one half of Tiger and Woods, and actually Marco Passerani um, and Valerio, who have this project called Tiger and Woods, uh, like it's kind of disco re-edit project. They actually met it in, th in this term, so um, yeah, quite quite a lot of different names. So moving on to your relationship with Ninja Tune, uh, it obviously first started with the Ninja Tune 20th anniversary box. You were asked to do a, a track for that, and that uh, went on to be released as part of an EP a bit later on. Um, and uh, you've already mentioned, but you obviously worked alongside Tom Chant and uh, Cinematic Orchestra. Um, how was that? So yeah, the whole Cinematic Orchestra thing um, actually also happened because uh, their manager, who I've also been in contact with um, due to uh, knowing Flying Lotus or having met Flying Lotus in MySpace back in like 2008 and um, having been on kind of mutual tours and stuff. Yeah, we just kind of got linked in around 2011 when they had the show at the Royal Albert Hall with uh, at the kind of 20 year ninja show. It was where I presented the Tears, Tears Like Paris EP uh, with a kind of string quartet and Clement Sidrim on drums. Um, and that's actually where Jason Me met the first time and a year after that he was planning this uh, release. I think it's the first in the In Motion series where uh, he, invited, he invites artists to basically do a new soundtrack or a soundtrack to a movie, to a movie with no sound. Uh, like either a silent or art film or something. Um, and to then kind of have that be premiered at the Barbican. And yeah, I, I chose, or actually Jason also sent me this two me movies by um, an Austrian experimental filmmaker called Peter Tchaikovsky, um, who gladly approved of <laughs> me doing this at some point. Um, and yeah, it was, it was a really interesting thing because, especially at that time, 
um, after the whole trilingual thing happened and also with her Tears Tears Like Paris being more of a club-heavy record, I was I was getting kind of interested in doing something uh, different again. So I guess it, it, timing was kind of perfect to just, um, yeah, go and explore something a bit more, I'd say, yeah, less clubby and not, it's, it was nice to be on stage and not have to make people dance, so. in another track with a, a cinematic orchestra connection um, what, what tracks that yeah basically it's 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 a um, it also ties in well with the um, John Coltrane the your lady track that I played before because it's it's funny yeah, it's a, actually a remix um, that Jason did for uh, cold cuts back in I think must have been 98 or something if I'm not mistaken it was on the remix album for um, Cold Coats album Let Us Play, which was called Let Us Replay, if I'm not mistaken. And yeah, it's crazy to be here in Space Lab with the original <laughs> Cold Cuts sign back there. Um, because, yeah, and it's th that was the track where um, that actually yeah, initially got me to the Cinematic Orchestra. And yeah, so you're this. So we could play uh, Cold Cuts Return to Margin.
Moving on to uh, obviously your album Joined Ends, which is uh, out on tune now. Um, your, the mic record was obviously a, a signature piece of kit for your previous work, and uh, kind of put this to bed for this album. Um, what was your thinking there? I mean, is it does it still appear at all? Just in a live show, um, I think it was basically when I started working the album was around 2011 or 12 actually more. So I've been working with Microcork for seven years prior to that and just at, at some points it was just hard to get anything uh, interesting out of it sound-wise and aesthetically. So yeah, it was just... I still love playing with it because I've gotten so used to it and it really just feels like kind of kind of like an extension of my body somehow but I think production wise when you're in the studio at some point you know there's with an instrument like that of that kind of size and um, I mean that yeah it's I guess it's somehow it's limitless the, the options but with the microcork there was just nothing I could really do with it anymore at that time so I just invested into some new gear I got um, there's a shop in Vienna called Wavemeister that really started focusing on old synths and uh, vintage guitars and everything. So I was happy enough to know them and just be able to try out all these different synths and then um, just invested into some new gear, um, got like my own little studio flat and yeah, just started working on a new record. Cool. And was it hard finding another piece of kit? As you say, it was a, a, an extension of you practically. Not really, like I think it's, I'm always a person that kind of overstays as welcome when it comes to, um, to creative decision making. Like I always um, take my, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely, I think that's an Austrian thing maybe because you, one thing that's essentially different about a Viennese cafe and one in London is when you finish a coffee in London, you leave and in Vienna you stay for another four hours, and do nothing. So, yeah. It's, it's, it was about. It was really. It was about time. I could have done it a lot earlier, actually. So, what what kind of what pieces of kit appear on the album? Um, it's from a from um, the kind of monophone side. It's a Moog Prodigy, an SH101, and a Korg MS10, and then a poly, uh, one polyphonic synth that I used, which is a Jupiter 4 from Roland, and then also from a more um, also an electronic side, but still a kind of analog, or still a, an acoustic instrument too, is a, a Wurlitzer electric piano and a Glockenspiel. And one microphone is basically, yeah, that's been the main main instruments. Yeah, and, you, and uh, your, your vocals appear as well. Exactly, yeah. I've also started using my vocals the first time more as a kind of abstract. Also, like, um, been trying to kind of use them in a democratic way just to kind of level everything out in a um, almost like seeing the vocals in a more kind of an orchestral way of mixing them into tracks rather than having them play the lead role so well we see it as a as a lead a lead role one day where you're right out the front singing oh no not really like it's it's just it was the one thing that um i think i'm always curious about the things that or what's always intrigued me is not just to from when I produce music not to just do the one thing that I do do best but just try to do things that I'm not good at I think there's always a certain charm to working in ways that you don't really feel comfortable with and the voice was one of those things because I, I would never sing live for example so yeah it was yeah, it was a very interesting thing to explore Listen. 
So when you started the album, where where was your headspace? What was influencing you? Um, the actually when I started off with the record, I think one thing a lot of artists do is they kind of ask themselves what the record is they want to make, and in my case, that also had to do with just kind of exploring the records that I know and that I highly rate. Um, and one of them, I think, just because it's such an underdog and. Uh, I actually also read the, finally I read the Pitchfork review before coming here just to kind of see what I just know about, yeah, what other people have thought of the record because it's never really occurred to me to do that. But um, And it's a record by uh, South and Savalas, which is another, na- uh, which has been a kind of side project, I think, from Preview 73. And it was a record he released on Hefty Records in 2000. Um, and it's, I think, a record... Yeah, with a lot of radio static, a lot of live instrumentation, um, a lot of kind of textural work, ambient bits, but and it's just something that's you know I think Pitchfork kind of gave it a bad rating because it they said um, that its only kind of purpose would be a good Sunday afternoon listen, but I kind of find that beautiful. Like if an album works on a Sunday afternoon and it's perfect for that. I think that's harder than making an album that's, I don't know, aesthetically boundary breaking or whatever, who else, how you judge music even, but yeah. So for me, that was just one of the albums that, um, yeah, whatever kind of moment or context I played it in, it always seemed to kind of consume me and tie into who I was and where I was. So I kind of knew that that was the direction that I wanted to kind of go into and, so yeah, that's also why I brought this track, Aslabulas, from South and Southless.
When you were starting on your album, um, was a live trio always in your mind, or is it? Did you realise that towards the end? Um, I think it, for me it was always clear that at some point I'd. Um, it's just a question of who's gonna kind of do it first. If it's gonna be us with going back and through with JSBL, or if it's gonna be yeah, just a new project that we're starting. But it was, it was just the first time that um, we. All, I think we all, all of us knew that we wanted to just go get back on the road and just play kind of instruments again. Because I think as an electronic music producer, sometimes it can be a bit. Um, Especially when you when you also are an instrumentalist and when you know how to play an instrument, you would sometimes just get a bit bored of having to take care of everything. So you just want to be the keyboarder, you just want to be the drummer or bass player, and it's uh, yeah. There's a certain beauty, a certain beauty to just kind of you know being part of a of an entire thing. And so I think with with the album and the live show. It was just the first time also that it made sense to kind of translate it into something else because I think the my solo live show, which was always based on a, just me standing there with a laptop and a, a microcork, just didn't really suit the kind of aesthetic of the album or it was hard to kind of translate the um, what the album was about with that live show. So it was, yeah, gladly it was the first time that it really also made sense and um, that it worked out too. So. Was it easy to translate live? Um, obviously, got such a history playing with the other members. Did it come come together quite easily? Yeah, actually, um, I think we worked on it for about four weeks. So we had like a month in summer. Um, we split it into like, the first two weeks. We were working on a live set that we just discarded. So, so actually, we kind of figured it out in two weeks. Um, the one thing that was that I had to get used to was the live looping thing, which was kind of new to me because it's basically like having to take a record a perfect take every time you play because once you're off it, <laughs> the whole track sounds a bit jittery and weird. Um, and does it ever go wrong? Yeah, it's, it, it does go wrong, but I think that the charm to the whole live set is actually the moments where you kind of notice the errors because I think we've. If you play a perfect live set, it's basically just like listening to the album, so that kind of makes it boring again. So the the errors are where it at, are where it's at somehow. Um, but yeah, it's been it's taken two weeks to kind of get get it done from a technical side and everything. But then or like a month. But then it definitely took us like 12 shows to feel properly comfortable with it. How, how does it compare when you're a from doing your solo? playing live, to playing with a trio, playing your music, and then to playing with someone like Flylo, where you're, you know, essentially playing someone else's music. Yeah, it's definitely, those three have uh, shows that all have completely different kind of, for example, the solo show is like, I think the most natural thing to do for me because it's ever since I'm 19, so basically for like 11 years now, I've, it's just something that kind of became part of me is to just simple approach of just having a backing track and playing over it has always just been kind of the most fun and it feels like it's kind of my the way that I would see it's like my kind of way of DJing somehow weirdly like with all the kind of delay stuff I do too it kind of reminds me of scratching sometimes anyway so it's, um, the trio show is different from that as mentioned before just because I it's nice to just kind of be the keyboarder and focus on the you know harmonic side of things and 
and textural side and building melodies. So it's it's nice to just have like this one responsibility. So it kind of it's more like a just more like factory work somehow. We just take care of that division. And with the Flying Lotus show it was um, that was definitely one of the trickier ones because um, both me and Richard Spaven were joining in into his already kind of existing solo show. So we just kind of had to find our little spots and places where we could fit in and he kind of played a different set every night so it was it was like a kind of mental um, thing to it was like improvisationally really interesting because um, Steve's tracks are already so densely produced and when you need to find spots like kind of a couple of notes in there without ruining the kind of vibe of the whole thing yeah but that was that was a great great thing to do too process with your album um, you had a lot of tracks finished a while ago is that right um, do you like to sit on them and uh, I was kind of interested to know which tracks you did finish first um, and which kind of just took a long time to finally finish yeah it's I definitely think with this record I wanted to kind of see if they could stand the test of time for me because I think you yourself are always going to be the most critical as a kind of artist or producer so I just wanted to, some of the tracks are kind of locked away for half a year whilst working on the album and then I kind of re-listened and see, just to see if I kind of put them in the folder of tracks that I, I still like. So the first track actually that I finished was funnily still the most impactful was Draft Culture. And that's just one of the tracks I think that um, opened up the aesthetic and it's still kind of, it was still kind of connected to the more clubbier stuff I was doing back then. Um, but yeah, it's, for me it was just important to take my time and um, not to feel too worried or kind of pressured by the fast times we live in right now where people try to throw out something regularly just to kind of stay in, um, kind of in, in, in people's heads. So I kind of, yeah, I just liked it and I just liked the fact that um, I could somehow kind of myself let it marinate and see how 
yeah, how I'd feel about the tracks months after they were done, and I just yeah, I just felt like it was something that um, also helped me kind of just decide on uh, on the right tracks yeah, that tracks that kind of aesthetically fit together, and yeah. well, I think it. Definitely worth it. You've got a great album. Uh, it's out there. I think a lot of people in, enjoying it. And I uh, just want to say thanks very much for, for coming in. We've still got another track you brought in. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, it's a track by Dim Lights who just started bringing something from a contemporary artist that I rate highly and a good friend of mine as well. Um, Dim Light, who's a Swiss producer or a Swiss artist that's been also releasing music since around 2003, I think now. Um, and it's, yeah, just that would be a nice track to kind of end the podcasts also, especially because it's, it's called Ganotron and um, also definitely an artist that's been very influential to me. Um, so yeah, here's Dim Light with Ganotron. Brilliant. Well, thanks very much again for coming in. And um, thank you. Joined Ends is out now on Indochine. Once again to Dorian Concept for dropping by and we move on now to some of the new releases coming out on the Ninja Tune family of labels. First up it's Marabou State and a track called The Clown which is from their album Portraits and released on Counter. Marabou State and that's on counter. Next it's Seven Davis Jr 
with a track called Sunday Morning, and that's from his new album Universe, coming out on Ninja Tune. Did you never had a love like this before? Did you never had a love like this before? Did you never had a love like this before? Did you never had a love like this before? Did you never had a love like this before? Did you never had a love like this before? Did you never had a love like this before? Did you never had a love like this before? Did you never had a love like this before? Did you never had a love like this before? Did you never had a love like this before? Did you never had a love like this before? Did you never had a love like this before? Did you never had a love like this before? Did you never had a love like this before? Did you never had a love like this? That was Seven Davis Jr. with Sunday Morning from his new album Universe. Now it's the Mercury Prize winners, Young Fathers, with Ness from their second album on Big Dada. Here we are. Hey! Here we are. Baby, 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 baby. Mean all around. Hey! Taste of pleasure. Took a little something from nothing. Made it into something for someone. Nest by Young Fathers, and we move on to brain feeder artist Kamasi Washington and the 14 minute long rerun home.
That was just a brief part of Rerun Home by Kamasi Washington, and that's from his new album, The Epic, on Brainfeeder. Finally, it's Lee Bannon with Artificial Stasis from his second album on Nintatune. Bannon with Artificial Stasis, and that's from his Pattern of Excel album, coming out on NinjaTune. That's it once again for the NinjaTune podcast with myself, DK. My thanks to Tom for co-producing, and we'll be back with another instalment soon. <laughs>